Happy Sabbath, church. It's good to see you bright and early this morning. And it's good to see you on this beautiful, crisp, and cold morning. I'm looking forward for a high Sabbath this Sabbath. How about you? And I know that the Lord will tremendously bless us for he has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Very honored to be here with you this morning and also this weekend. This is my first ever YC. I know that there are many YCs throughout North America. You have this YC and I hear of that YC and this YC and all the YCs you can think of. But it has been um, my unfortunate experience to attend any YC except for this one this weekend. The reason being either I'm outside of the country doing a uh, mission trip, or I'm busy running an evangelistic meeting, or I'm just flat out broke. (laughs) And that's usually the case, amen? (laughs) But I'm very elated. I'm very delighted to be with you here this weekend at the Southwest Youth Conference. Stand. Before we begin, let us bow heads for a word of prayer. Father, into thy hands we commend our spirit. Amen. A king who lived in the 16th century needed a new chariot driver. So he sent the news far and wide that he's looking for a new driver for his chariot. And as the process went on in seeking for the best chariot driver in the nation, they finally shortlisted to three specific individuals. And because this was such a solemn and high calling to be the chariot driver of the king, the royal monarch decided to take it upon himself to interview each of these three potential drivers. The first driver came in, and he asked him one simple question. If you were my driver, how close to the edge of the cliff will you be able to drive? Now we're reminded that this wasn't a four-wheel drive or an F-150. This was horses and a chariot. How close to the edge of the cliff will you be able to drive? The first potential driver boasts in his pride and he says, Oh king, live forever. If you chose me as your driver... I could drive two inches away from the edge of that cliff. 
I mean, that's how much of a good driver I am. The king seems fascinated. And so he calls in the second driver and he asks him the same question. And he says to him, if I were to choose you as my potential driver, how close to the edge of the cliff will you be able to drive? Now the first driver said two inches. How many inches will you be able to drive? And the second potential driver boasts and he says, Oh king, live forever. If you were to choose me as your driver, I will be able to drive you as close as half an inch away from that cliff. I mean, that's how much of a rally driver I am. The king seems a bit intrigued. And so he calls in the final potential driver. And he asks him the same question. How close to the edge of the cliff will you be able to drive? The first driver said two inches. The next driver said half an inch. How about you? This man in his poor, humble voice says, O king, live forever. If you were to choose me as your driver, I will keep as far away as I can from the edge of that cliff. Who do you think got the job? <laughs> I submit this simple illustration to your attention this morning because such is the gospel of God. The Bible commands us and demands us to keep as far away as we can from the worldly pleasures of this world. Amen. To stand apart is not to be a two-inch Christian. There are so many young people in God's remnant church who try to be saved and at the same time dabble themselves with the things of this world. Stand apart. Keep away as far as you can from the sins of this world. There are too many two-inch Christians in God's church trying to get as close as they can to the edge of the cliff and still be saved at the same time. Stand apart. Our theme for this weekend is stand. What is it? Stand. My sub-theme for this morning is stand apart. Tonight, by the grace of God, we will talk about standing up. Can you say amen? amen. And this morning's sub-theme doesn't just come from one particular verse in Scripture or one short periphery in Scripture, but it comes from a, a numerous amount of verses. And though they may have been written at different times of the Christian era, and though they may have been different, uh, written by different prophets of old, they seem to resonate one simple message, stand apart, stand apart, keep away from the edge of that cliff. If you have your Bibles with you, come with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17 
There are three simple verses I'd like to bring to you this morning. That bring out the point of standing apart. Second Corinthians, what chapter are we on? Chapter 6 and verse 17. The Bible reads, Wherefore, come out from where? Among them. And be ye separate, saith the Lord. And what? Touch not the unclean thing. Then I will receive you. If Paul was simply here this morning, you'll simply say, stand apart. Touch not the unclean thing. Come out of her, my people. Keep away from the edge of that cliff. Second Timothy. Second Timothy. Chapter 2. And verse 4. Second Timothy. Chapter 2. And what verse are we on? Verse 4. The Bible reads, No man that what? No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of which life? This life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a what? Soldier. How many soldiers are here for Christ? There are two key verses, the two key words from this verse. Warreth and entangleth. Now the Bible simply teaches us that there is a war going on. I'm not talking about a war in a far distant land in the Middle East. There is a special and unique kind of warfare going on even as we speak. This war is not a war of oil. Nor is it a war of philosophical ideas. This is a unique kind of warfare. And you won't hear about this kind of warfare on CNN. Fox News won't tell you about this kind of warfare. The mainstream media or any media kind of all will not tell you about the warfare that Paul is referring to here. The only one place that you will find out information about this war is the Word of God. There is a war going on even as we speak. And whether you like it or not, we are all participants of this war. Either you stand under the black banner of Lucifer or you stand under the blood-stained banner of Emmanuel. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And being part of this warfare demands of us that we not entangle ourselves with the things of this war, of this world. We cannot cling to the things of this world. Amen? Any man that warreth cannot entangle himself with the customs and the cultures and the pagan concepts of this world. Separate yourself. Stand apart. And I will receive you. Romans chapter 12. Romans, what chapter are we on? Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
the Bible reads, I beseech you. That's not a word we often use today. I beseech you. Paul is simply saying, I urge you, I plead with you, I agonize with you. I'm asking you desperately, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2. And then the Bible goes on to say, And be not what? Be not conformed. Another word for conformed is simply, do not pattern yourself after. Do not copy the things of this world. Be not conformed. Stand apart. For ye are a holy nation. Be not conformed. Stand apart. For ye are a royal priesthood. Stand apart. For ye are kings and priests unto the high and living God. Be not conformed to this world. But I praise God the verse doesn't end there. How can we not be conformed to this world? Notice what the Bible says. Be not conformed to this world. But be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. To stand apart begins in the renewal of one's mind. One cannot be unique based on his own works. One cannot stand apart based on how much education they may have or how much money or how much prestige they may have at church or in society. But one can only stand apart when they have the mind of Christ. It begins with having the mind of Christ. Be ye not conformed, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. When I was at Andrews, there was a highway that will always lead to the local Walmart. And on this highway was a billboard that always caught my attention. And on this billboard was a human brain, a skull and a human brain. And with big, bold letters, it would simply say, the mind is a terrible thing to waste. The mind, S-W-Y-C, is a terrible thing to waste when we entangle ourselves with the things of this world. Your mind is so precious in the sight of God that it becomes corrupt when you watch those things you shouldn't be watching. It's a terrible thing to waste when you read those things that you shouldn't be reading. When you click on those internet sites you shouldn't be clicking on. The mind is a terrible thing to waste. When we listen to those songs we shouldn't be listening to, it is a terrible thing to degrade. We must have the mind of Christ. Standing apart simply means to have the mind of Christ. A renewal of one's mind. Speaking of 
the warfare that we are all engaged in. The Bible and the pen of inspiration tells us that we are living in what is known as the battle of the great controversy. We all know that. And the battle of the great controversy is more than just the battle between good and evil. The battle of the great controversy is more than just the battle between truth and error. The battle of the great controversy is more than just the battle between Christ and Satan. But when we analyze the great controversy, we will conclude that the battle of the great controversy is the battle over our minds. Whom we will give our allegiance to? Who will we surrender our minds to? That's what the battle of the great controversy is about. It's the battle of our minds. For the Bible and the pen of inspiration teaches us, out of our minds come our actions. Our, rep our repetition and actions lay the foundation of our habits. Our habits lay the foundation of our character, and our character determines our destiny. In the battle of the great controversy, Satan does not want your character. In the battle between truth and error, Satan does not want your works. Satan wants your mind because once he has your mind, he has your character. Satan wants your mind because once he has your mind, he has your works and he has your final destination. And the pen of inspiration tells us that the only avenue, the only avenue that Satan can use to get into our mind are those five senses. Therefore, remember that song I used to sing when I was a young child. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For your father up above is looking down from heaven above. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Amen? Be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little hands, what you touch. For all of these things have an impression on your mind. Be careful, little mouth and appetite, what you eat. For it ultimately has an effect on your mind. Stand apart is to have a renewal of one's mind. Having the mind of Christ. But I want to make one point very, very clear this morning. Our uniqueness, our what? Our uniqueness in standing apart as God's remnant people is first of all rooted in Jesus, our Savior. Our uniqueness and our peculiarity is rooted in Christ as our sacrifice, Christ as our high priest, and Christ as our coming deliverer. Then once we have that premises, our uniqueness and standing apart is now reminding us 
that in order to stand apart and to be unique, we must have a unique message. Our uniqueness is first found in Jesus, and secondly, our uniqueness is found in the kind of message we proclaim. We have a beautiful message. Fear God. Give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him that made heaven and earth. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Receive not the mark of the beast on your forehead or on your hand. This is what gives us uniqueness, young people. Don't be conformed to the false doctrines of this world. Preach the message with that certain sound. When I think of uniqueness and standing apart in our message and our identity, I think of a good friend of mine who's a successful businessman. Works for one of the biggest computer firms in the world. In the world. And I had the privilege of staying with him for a few months. And one of the things that I asked him, I said, you work with computers. Your company produces so much hardware and so much software. When I go into Best Buy, <clears throat> I mean, I see so many gadgets. I see so many laptops, including the one that your company produces. What will make me as a consumer buy your product? I mean, I can get the same product at a cheaper price from this company. I can get the same cell phone at a cheaper price from this company. So what will draw me to buy your specific product? And he laughed and he says, Douglas, in the business world, there is a phrase that we call competitive advantage. And he simply began to break down and he simply said, competitive advantage is what makes our product sell. And competitive advantage is the only reason why we're the biggest computer manufacturing in the world. And I said, what's, computer, what's competitive advantage? And he says, when you go into Best Buy, yes, it's true. You will see many different types of laptops and you will see many different types of cameras and you will see different types of cell phones. But competitive advantage is simply this. What is it that makes this particular gadget different from all the other gadgets? That's competitive advantage. What is it that makes this laptop, what kind of features does this laptop have that none of these other laptops cannot, cannot produce? And once you have that competitive advantage, people will buy your product. When I think of this, God has given us a competitive advantage message, amen? People hear all kinds of gospels every week and every Sundays and, and every day of the week. But what is it that makes our message unique? Is we have the three angels' messages. What do you say? That's our competitive advantage. That's what makes us stand apart. I found this theory to be true as I was coming here this weekend. 
as I was waiting at the airport in Dallas Fort Worth I was sitting on the seat and I pulled out my phone the simple stone-aged AT&T Samsung phone and I thought I was pretty cool playing off my Tetris on my phone waiting for my next flight then this other young man sits next to me and I'm kind of like putting my phone so he can kind of see what kind of cool games I downloaded <laughs> and he replies back by pulling out his iPhone <laughs> and he starts pulling out his iPhone and then the next guy comes and he pulls out his iPhone in a matter of minutes the whole row had iPhones except for me <laughs> I did not have competitive advantage amen so I slowly took my phone and put it back in my pocket and just waited for my next flight. <laughs> Competitive advantage. This is what makes us stand apart. What do you say? Come with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14 I want to bring out a few verses here regarding this beautiful message that makes us stand apart Revelation what chapter are we on 14 beginning with verse 6 the Bible reads and I saw another angel flying where in the midst of heaven and what does it have the everlasting gospel now this strongly insinuates and suggests that this is a unique kind of gospel one that originates with the original gospel but there's some kind of uniqueness in this gospel this is the only time in scripture that the gospel is identified as everlasting the only time therefore insinuating that there is uniqueness to this message what do you say it is the everlasting gospel but why is it everlasting the Bible teaches us that this gospel is everlasting in its nature in other words throughout time man has tried to dilute and corrupt this gospel but this gospel shall stand forever no matter how much man tries to dilute this gospel and attack this gospel this gospel shall stand forever Kingdoms shall rise and fall, but the gospel of God shall stand forever. Mountains shall fall and grasses may wither away, but this gospel shall stand forever. It is the everlasting gospel and it will stand until the second coming of Jesus. It is everlasting in its nature. It is unique. But furthermore, the Bible teaches us that this gospel is everlasting in its effects. In other words, when you preach this gospel, empowered with the outpouring of the latter rain, when you receive this gospel as sincere as you are, it will produce everlasting life. It's everlasting in its nature, and it's everlasting in its effects. It will produce everlasting life. What do you say? How many of you long and desire for everlasting life? the everlasting gospel will not be diluted will not be refrained the everlasting gospel will produce eternal salvation it is a unique gospel one that makes us stand apart fear God 
Give glory to him for the hour of his what? Of his judgment is what? Is come and what should we do? Worship him that what? Made heaven and earth the sea and the fountains of waters. Now the Bible simply teaches us in this beautiful message that the first angel and the second angel and the third angel are all interdependent. They're all linked together. They are not dichotomized. They are not separate. They are not compartmentalized. They are all linked together. For example, when one refuses the first angel's message, the ultimate outcome is you will find yourself falling like Babylon. And when you find yourself spiraling out of control, the ultimate consequence is you will receive the mark of the beast. All of these three messages are interrelated and interconnected. Fear God. Babylon is fallen. Receive not the mark of the beast. Therefore suggesting to us, SWYC, that receiving the mark of the beast does not happen overnight. It is a downward, downward spiral. Did you know that? Don't think that you can do all that you want now and you're just going to keep your eyes on the White House and keep your eyes focused on the Pope and when this certain law will pass, then you will stand. If you are not standing now, you won't stand then. It's a downward progressive spiraling out of control. Listen to what the pen of inspiration says in that beautiful book, Testimonies for the Church, volume 5, page 81. She says, The time is not far distant when the test will come. When what will come? When the test will come to every soul. The mark of the beast, the mark of what? The mark of the beast will be, she doesn't say probably or maybe, she says will be. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. And notice what she says next. Those who have step by step, those who have step by step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it a hard matter to yield to the powers that be. Receiving the mark of the beast is a step-by-step process. When you refuse to fear God, when you refuse to give glory to Him, when you refuse to worship Him, thus will begin for you the step-by-step process towards perdition. I'm reminded of the seven churches. In my church, every Friday night, we're currently going through the book of Revelation. And it's been almost two months now and we're still on our fourth church. But this is one thing I found pretty devastating about the seven churches. The first church, which is what church? 
the Ephesus church, the pure church, the one that longed for the purity of truth. The Bible says that at the beginning of the seven churches, keep your eyes focused on Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus was in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Remember that? He's in the midst of the church. But then we go from the Ephesus church, the pure church, to the Smyrna church, the church that was persecuted. Then the Bible, when we go and read the final church, the Laodicean church, where is Jesus? He is standing on the outside trying to get in. Now you answer this for me. How did Jesus go from being in the midst of the church to standing on the outside trying to get in? It was a step-by-step process. The church went from a pure church to a persecuted church. And the Bible and the pen of inspiration tells us that during the Smyrna period, God's people were being persecuted for their faithfulness. But for every one Christian that was martyred and persecuted, ten more joined the ranks of Christianity. And so Satan was fighting and losing battle. Then we come to the Pergamos church where Satan changed his attack tactics. Where he says, listen, I ain't getting these guys. For every one person, ten more joining the ranks. And then he finally says, if I ain't going to beat them, I'll just join them. Thus the church became elevated and Pergamos church became the church of compromise. Step by step, it went from a pure church to a persecuted church to a church of compromise. Then finally to a church that is blind, naked and feeling, feeling just fine about it. Step by step, what do you say? Thus will be the case for those who receive the mark of the beast. If you are not faithful now in standing apart, you will not be faithful then in standing apart. Be faithful. What are you saying? Fear God. Give glory to him for the hour of his what? Judgment is come and what should we do? Worship. I want to pause and ponder on this for a moment. You know, too many times we have the out there mentality. The out there mentality simply is this. Oh yes, we need to preach the three angels' messages out there. The out there mentality simply is this. We become so enthusiastic in denouncing the sins and the hypocrisies out there and somehow we are blind to the sins and the hypocrisies in here. And we become so gung-ho in preaching the three angels' messages out there that we forget to realize that we need it more in here. Worship him. Don't have that out there mentality, amen? Amen. We're so quick and easy to denounce the sins of the White House, and yet we have sins right here in God's house. Worship him that made heaven and earth. This is a in here text as well as an out there text. The Bible tells us to worship him. What should we do? Worship him. Why should we worship him? God. 
First of all, the Bible says, worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. This is a direct reference to creation. Therefore, telling us SWYC that when we worship God, it has some sort of connection to creation. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth reminds us of our roots. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth reminds us of where we came from. Worshiping God reminds us that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. Thus, when we neglect to worship God, and when God's people inside his church neglect to worship him in spirit and in truth, that's why we get such false theologies and doctrines as evolution. Claiming that we have somehow evolved from some homo sapien sapien millions of years ago. But worshiping God reminds us that we did not evolve from a shell or from a crocodile or from some homo sapien, but we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. It's an in here text, what he's saying. Don't believe any kind of evolution that this world tries to teach you. Worship him that made heaven and earth. It reminds us of our roots. It reminds us where we came from. It reminds us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. If that's clear, can you say amen? amen. Worship. Have we forgotten to worship God? Come with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 15. Matthew, what chapter are we on? Chapter 15, and notice what the Bible says. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9. The Bible says, and this is Jesus speaking, the Son of God. But in vain do they what? Do they worship me? This is not only referring to the heart of worship, but also to the method of worship. So Jesus simply teaches us that in the end times, there will be two kinds of worship. How many kinds? Two, those who worship the beast or those who worship the creator. And there is a particular kind of worship that is abominable in the sight of God. Not all worship is acceptable in the sight of God. Worship him that made heaven and earth. Why was it important for God's people to worship him correctly? Why? Well, first of all, the Bible teaches us, young people, that we have a covenant relationship with God. Amen? We have a covenant relationship with him. And in our covenant relationship, the covenant relationship reminds us that God is the superior party. That's what the covenant relationship teaches us. God is the superior party. And because we have this covenant relationship with God, and God is the superior party, therefore God, not us, dictates how we worship him. Let me give you an example. 
I was born and raised in New Zealand. How many of you have been to New Zealand? Amen. God bless you. <laughs> New Zealand is part of the Commonwealth. And being part of the Commonwealth, we have our own government, we have our own prime minister, but we also have a queen. Amen? Queen Elizabeth, the queen of England. Now, she has no power, but she's the head of the monarch. Now, because we are part of the commonwealth, we have some sort of a covenant relationship with the queen. And because we have this covenant relationship with the queen, we realize as being subjects of Great Britain and being part of the commonwealth that the queen is the superior party. Amen? Therefore... When the queen, I'm not sure if she's going to do this, ever invites me to Buckingham Palace, I don't just storm in there and say, yo, what's up, Liz? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Because she is the superior party, she dictates, not me, she dictates how I approach her. And I have good friends who've been to Buckingham Palace and they tell me that there is a two-day process in where they train you how to dine with royalty. You don't just walk in there and say, yo, what's up? And such is the case in our covenant relationship with God. What do you say? He dictates how we worship him. He is the superior party in our covenant relation. Worship him that made heaven and earth. When I think of worship, I think of the book of Judges. Come with me to the book of Judges. Judges. And notice what the Bible says. In the book of uh, Judges, chapter 8. Judges, the 8th chapter. Why is it important to worship God correctly? This is what makes us stand apart. Judges, chapter 8, beginning with verse 22. Notice, notice something very bizarre and strange here. The Bible says in verse 22, Judges chapter 8, we're talking about worship. We're talking about the first angel's message. Judges chapter 8, what verse are we on? Verse 22, Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. Then the Bible says, And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you, the Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you, that ye would give me every man the what? The earrings of his prey, for they had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We would willingly give them, and they spread a garment and did cast there in every man the earrings of his prey. And what did they do with those earrings and all of that gold? Verse 22, uh, 26. 
and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a thousand and seven hundred shekels of gold beside ornaments and collars and purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian and beside the chains that were about their camel's neck. And notice what happens in verse 27. And Gideon made a what? An ephod thereof and put it in his city, even in Ophrah. And all Israel, what did they do? They went whoring after it, the ephod. They made the ephod their idol. They began to worship this idol. And nowhere in scripture does God say worship an ephod. Amen? Thus, they were worshiping God incorrectly. And notice what happens. Notice the ramifications. Notice the consequences of what happens when we worship God incorrectly. The Bible says, And they went whoring after it, which thing became a sneer unto Gideon and to his house. This is what happens when we worship God incorrectly, both in method and in spirit. But notice what it says in verse 33. As a result of not worshiping God correctly, what's the ultimate consequence? Verse 3, and it came to pass as soon as Gideon was what? Dead, that the children of Israel, what happened? turned again and went a whoring after Balaam and made Baal beareth their God. This is the consequences of what happens when we worship God incorrectly, when we do not uphold the first angel's message, worship him that made heaven and earth. False worship will ultimately lead you to worship other gods. And that's why so many of our young people leave this church and they worship the God of sports. They worship the God of drugs. They worship the God of money because we're worshiping God incorrectly in this church. And because they had an incorrect form of worship, they said, you know what? If this is what it's going to take, I might as well go all the way. Amen? Worship. Him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. Stand apart and be that chosen generation. What do you say? Stand apart and be that peculiar people. Stand apart and be that holy nation. Our uniqueness is found in Jesus. In whom? In Jesus, our sacrifice. Jesus, our great high priest. Jesus, our mediator. Jesus, our coming deliverer. Furthermore, our uniqueness is found in the message we proclaim. Fear God. Give glory to him. Stand apart. Keep away from the edges of this world, the cliffs of this world. I want to add one more dimension to this before I sit down. I remember growing up as a young child. My dad, every Christmas, he used to take us shopping at the mall. <clears throat> and this is what fascinated me as a young lad. Out here in this mall, every, every Christmas, only in the months of December to early January, was this great, big, gigantic Santa Claus. I mean, a huge statue. And I was only like five or six. 
And this is what fascinated me about this great image, is that it would stand there in the middle, opening of the mall, and his finger, the, twice the size of a human being, would go like this. That fascinated me as a young child. In my innocency and my naivety, I wondered to myself, wow, that thing is alive. But more than just this finger going like this, its, its, its eyelids would open and close. Probably four times the size of a human being. And the mouth would open and close every time the finger would do this. And this fascinated me as a young child. And I thought that this great statue was alive. I wanted to talk to it. I wanted to speak to it. I mean, if it's telling me to come and shop in the mall, it must say something. And this fascinated me every year. From five to six, seven and then when I was about nine or 10, I decided to go stand under this great statue. And to my disappointment, I found that the statue was purely run by a machine. It was lifeless. To the outside world, it seemed like there was a life. To the outside world, it seemed like it was doing great things for God. But deep down inside, it was destitute of the Holy Spirit. And I submit this to your attention this morning because there are some Christians who are just like that Santa Claus. They're doing great things. They're preaching great sermons. They're doing wonderful projects and proclaiming the three angels' messages, but they are void of the outpouring of the latter rain. This is what gives us life. This is what gives us power, the unction of the Holy Ghost. We can have a message, but if we don't have the latter rain, our message is of no avail. We can preach like there's no tomorrow that Jesus is coming soon. Worship him that made heaven and earth. But if Jesus is not sanctifying you and purifying you, my dear friends, your religion becomes mechanical and robotic. And you go to church every Sabbath and every Tuesday and you get caught up in the mundane routines of a mechanical and robotic religion. We have a message. But this can only be proclaimed when we open our hearts to the Holy Spirit. I am convinced, I am convinced this weekend, I am convicted that if we are to stand, we need the latter rain power. If we are to stand apart, we need to be imbued with the Holy Ghost. Not by might, not by talent, None of these things will ever bring us to the point of standing. For without Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we become sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Jesus is coming soon. What do you say? Yeah. And I want to be ready when Jesus comes. Fear God. Give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. May God bless us this weekend.